0: there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for thirty eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to them, said to him, Do you want to be healed? But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God.
1: There's a belief that bathing in the Ganges River in India can heal your body of sicknesses and disabilities, of disease and disabilities and even cleanse you of your sins. So there's all kinds of religious shrines there along the river. Uh, This is people from all over the world come to bathe in the Ganges River, even though uh, the ashes of cremated bodies are daily scattered in it, even though um, lots of sludge is dumped in upriver further, as well as human waste. I've been on the Ganges River in a boat. I did not try to find out if it would heal me. It's amazing that people will believe what people will believe or do when they are desperate, deceived, or hopeless. Today we'll read about a lame man who had waited by some healing waters for 38 years but never made it to the water in time to receive its supposed healing properties. Even if he had made it and gotten healed, would that have solved his worst problem? His situation was hopeless. So we'll see how his encounter with Jesus addresses this question looking at the first three verses, after this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So it's Jesus' second of his three trips to Jerusalem that's recorded in John's Gospel. He mentions a pool, Bethesda, by the Sheep Gate. It has five roofed colonnades, like covered porches, to protect people from, from the weather. In these colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, disabled people, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, some of you may wonder, if, you've, if you're if you paying attention to your Bible, you may wonder why it skips from verse 3 to verse 4, or verse 5, 3 to 5, where did verse 4 go? So just to mention that real quickly, um, in, the, in some of the early manuscripts contain a verse that is not included in the older and best manuscripts. So the Bible has tons and tons, the New Testament has many, many thousands of manuscript evidence of what the original was. And because some of the better manuscripts, older ones, do not include this verse, it shows up in some of the more recent ones. Uh, your translators have just put it as a footnote in your Bible. So if you ever see that, it actually gives us great confidence we have God's Word as it was originally written because we have so many manuscript copies. You're able to go back and see where they might have inserted like a scribe on have thought, well, they need to know this. And so a scribe or a copyist might have thought, insert this verse so they'll understand it better. But it didn't seem to be necessarily in the original text, so that's what's going on there. If you want to know more about that, you'll go to Matt Q's class, How We Got Our Bibles. Free advertisement there. <laughs> and it's very interesting, because it really builds your confidence in the Bible rather than, than wondering, wow, are there are mistakes, because they have really identified anything questionable. So verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. The only thing John describes about this invalid, this man, this one man, is the length of time that he had been crippled, he had been disabled, because it had taken away all his hope of a cure. Then in verse six, it says Jesus saw him lying there and knew what he had already that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, Do you want to be healed? So Jesus is walking through this whole crowd of, of disabled and sick people around this pool and it says, Jesus saw the man. Well, of course. They, he's walking through a crowd and he sees this man, but, but out of this whole crowd, why does it say Jesus saw this one man when there are many people as he walked through the pool area? None of them recognizing who, who's walking through their midst is the one who, in whom was life, as John talks about back in John chapter 1, verse 5 and 4. Jesus is the one in whom is life. They don't recognize him for that, of course. They just see this man walking through And of all the people who were there, he chose this one for healing. We don't know why he did. It's just he has reasons known only to him and his father. Jesus knew that the man had been there a long time, whether he knew that um, supernaturally or naturally, it doesn't say. He he could have asked people or or he might have, by his super-enhanced capabilities, known that that man had been there for a long time. Either way, it doesn't matter. Jesus asked the man an amazing question. Do you want to be healed? I mean, why did he think he had been there all this time? It's an amazing question to ask. But for hopeless people, it is a great question. See how the man answers, in verse seven, the sick man answered him, "Sir, I have no one. I have no one. I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going down, while I'm going, another one steps down before me." So whatever the man thinks of this question, his answer shows he had seen as his only hope of getting well. You can hear in the man's answer a resignation to a situation. I hang out where healing could happen, but I have no way of getting, ever getting healed. I have no one, no human advocate. It's been the same thing for 38 years, is his lament. So in looking at that, I wonder how many of us have been stuck in brokenness, whether physical, emotional, spiritual, or otherwise, or relational even, in hopelessness or despair and have long given up any real hope of being healed. So if Jesus were to ask you, do you want to be healed, how would you answer? Would you even recognize an Jesus bringing that opportunity to you? Have you become so accustomed to your hopelessness that you don't really desire to be healed anymore? Just This is just how life is. I can't even imagine. I don't even want it. Would you recognize Christ's offer of healing if it was presented to you? Would you say, I have no one who can help me. I've tried everything. It's hopeless. That's where this man was. So Jesus just says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And before he can say, yeah, right, he does. Next verse. There's not any indication the man had faith that Jesus could or would heal him. He just, Jesus just speaks this right to him. He just commands the man to do what he had no ability to do in himself. Get up, take up your bed and walk. So what Jesus commanded the man to do physically is what he does to us spiritually. When we hear his voice in the gospel, just as he speaks power into the lame legs, he speaks life into dead souls. In the midst of our spiritual deadness, he calls us to live. In fact, this is what Jesus is talking about a few verses later down in verse 25. In verse 25 of chapter 5, he says, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So, Jesus says to us, live, and we live. There's no holding back. When Jesus says it, it happens. And in verse 9, it says, At once the man was healed. There was no gradual, there was no, Hey, how you doing? He just does it. He took, took up his bed and walked. His word is powerful, and what he commands must happen and happens instantly. Just as when Jesus, the word, uh, John back in chapter 1, says, Jesus is the one who created all things, he created the universe. When he said, let there be light, there was light. What Jesus says has to happen, always. He doesn't need to go through any extreme motions or weird behaviors. He doesn't need to use any magic words. He doesn't need to use any other human tools or anything else at all. He just speaks, and it's done. His word is powerful and effective, whether faith is present or not. Then the uh, latter part of verse 9 says, That day was the Sabbath. And then verse 10 says, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Uh-oh, you know, dum 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 You know, it's, he's in trouble now. There's nothing in any scriptural Sabbath command that prohibited anyone from carrying their bed at all. The point of keeping the Sabbath day holy was not to carry on with your regular weekly work. It wasn't, say, don't carry something from one place to another. But some of the rabbis had developed in what was called the Mishnah, 39 categories of work that couldn't be done on the Sabbath, including taking or carrying anything from one place to another. So they had added that to Scripture's commands, which is just don't do your normal weekly work on the Sabbath. So what does the man do when confronted by the religious authorities? He blames one who healed him. Well, he did it. He healed me. He answered verse 11. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, from their perspective... The, religious, the relig- religious leaders, the one who told the man to violate one of those 39 categories of prohibited work, is more at fault. So they ask him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And they're reminded an the amazing miracle just taken place and this guy's healed. It doesn't matter. All that matters to them is they, he violated their code. Don't walk. Don't carry something on the Sabbath. That's the epitome of legalism. For legalists, their rules are what matter, not people being set free from bondage. Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now Jesus, Jesus is not afraid of confrontation, but he often slips away so it's not unnecessarily to get entangled in his enemy's plots or to create a big commotion with the crowds. But Jesus does go and seek this man out later. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Does Jesus mean that when we have sickness or disabilities, it's a result of our own personal sin? Well, it was a popular notion in Jesus' day, as we'll see when we get to chapter 9. I'll just mention to you, I don't think I had this on the screen, but beginning of chapter 9, as Jesus and his disciples pass by, they see a man blind from birth. And his disciples ask him, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be might be displayed in him. So it's not not true, not absolutely not true, that all physical ailments are directly due to specific sins we have committed. It is true that all sickness and disabilities are a result of, of the fall. The sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they fell, they brought physical illness, including up to including death, upon all people. But it's not true that every sickness is the direct consequence of our personal sins, as when people say this or that bad thing happened to you because of bad karma that kind of thing. It doesn't mean that there is never, this doesn't mean it's never true that some sicknesses are the result of specific sins we've committed. There are some bad behaviors and habits that very clearly have consequences, such as um, drive under the influence of alcohol, you may end up hurting yourself and others or killing yourself and others. Or if you just eat Big Macs, supersized drinks and fries only all the time, you're probably not going to be in very good health, you're probably going to have some extra weight. So there are things that are very clearly a result of bad behaviors or, or harmful behaviors. But there are many that are not that way. Sometimes God may bring, people, bring sickness on people as only he can do for their sinning. So I'll illustrate with a couple examples from the Bible. In Acts chapter 12, Herod one day was speaking. He was giving a speech. He was being interviewed by CNN. And people were, the people were shouting, The voice of a God, not a man. Just like when you hear politicians speak, you're so impressed you say, a voice of a God, not a man. Maybe you don't say that. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms, you, and breathes his last. So here was a God-caused sickness because of sin. Or King Uzziah was a pretty good king in his early days, but when he was strong, he got proud. He goes into the temple to burn incense, which only the priests were allowed to do. No king, just priests, descendants of Moses' brother Aaron. So they try to stop, and they say, You're not allowed to do this, king. Please stop. He gets angry with the priest. He lifts up his arm with a censer to burn incense, and leprosy broke out on his forehead, and he was a leper till the day he died. So there's another example of God causing sickness for those who are sinning against him. Or on the other hand, Job was an upright man who suffered terribly. His servants and animals were all killed, his children all died. He had a terrible sores on his skin that made him unrecognizable, and it dried up and got all scabby, and he had to scrape it off with potter pottery, which is, sounds pretty hard and painful and gross. He didn't know why God had done this to him, or why God had allowed it. We read we get the story behind the scenes that Satan had challenged God about Job saying, "The only reason Job was upright." was because God had so favored him. He says, if you take your favor away from him, he'll curse you right to your face. God said, okay, let's see. Just don't kill him. So Satan causes all these things to happen to Job. His friends show up, and they're so stunned by his appearance, they don't talk for a whole week, which they should have just kept doing that, because when they do talk, they get it wrong. They say, obviously, Job, the reason this happened to you is because you have hidden sin in your life. God says, I do not. They said, yes, you do. He says, no, I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. And you go back chapter after chapter a chapter of that and at the end you find out that even though God had to correct Job's view of his sovereign greatness uh, that God said but your friends got it wrong and so Job was suffering horribly but not because of his own sin as God had some other purpose that Job had no idea about so some sickness is due to sin but often it's not now back to Jesus and the lame man or ex-lame man Jesus said to him sin no more and that could be translated stop sinning The language Jesus uses here stresses urgency. Evidently, Jesus knows this man has an area of habitual sin in his life that led to his his disability. He, um, why is Jesus so urgent? This man stop sinning. Well, he says because something worse may happen to him if he doesn't stop his sinful habit. Whatever it was, what could be worse? Well, you can imagine worse things not being able to walk. I mean, there are he could have other things going on. suffer worse, but that's not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus didn't seek out this man just to make him well physically. He sought out this man to make him well spiritually, to give him spiritual wholeness. Something worse, than is the final judgment. If you think suffering physical affliction as a consequence of your sin is bad, consider how much worse it is to suffer for all eternity because of God's judgment. That's far worse than any physical disability we could ever have without hope of recovery. Now, in Luke's gospel, some people asked Jesus about some Galileans who had, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So Luke 13. I think that's on the screen, but Luke 13, 1 to 5. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what, what's the point? Well, the point to see here is that when someone suffers a disaster or sickness, it doesn't mean they're suffering because they're worse sinners than others. In fact, they may not be suffering because of sin at all. But if any, anyone dies in a disaster or of a disease... It just dies, period, before they repent and turn to Jesus. Their death will be a tragic end because going into eternity without repenting and receiving Jesus is always a tragedy. That's Jesus' point here. Eternal suffering under God's judgment in hell is always worse than your worst day here on earth. So did the man heed Jesus' warning? Well, we don't know. Did he repent? We don't know that either. But we, in verse 15, it's not sounding very hopeful because what you see is the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had, who had healed him. So um, he goes and tells the Jews that Jesus was the one who healed him. When he reports on Jesus, Jesus to them, he refers to him as the one who had healed him. You might think that would cause him to think, wow, this guy healed me. I've been sick for 38 years. I never thought I had any hope of being healed. I should be really grateful. That I shouldn't get him in trouble. I should be thankful to this guy. But instead he just goes to him and says, nope, Jesus is the guy who healed me. And doesn't feel any loyalty to him or he doesn't seem like he takes Jesus' warning to stop sinning seriously at all. So in verse 16, it says, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So the Jewish opposition to Jesus now, you kind of feel it building up till this point, but it now breaks into persecution. They don't say what, what they did. just says they're persecuting him. In verse 17, Jesus answers them. He doesn't say what they said, but he says, My father is working until now, and I'm working. Jesus doesn't report any words they spoke. He just says, Jesus answered them. But this is the defense in response to their opposition. He says his father has been working all this time until the present, and he is working. For For this defense to be valid... Whatever justifies God's continuing to work from creation until now must apply to Jesus as well. So, the, again, the origin of the Sabbath day was that after God created the heavens and the earth in six days, he rested from all his work of creating on the seventh day. It's like when you work hard in your yard and it looks good, and you want to just rest and enjoy it for a while. God, hey, I'm going to take a break here and just enjoy the creation that I just made. But from that point forward, he has a lot to do, he has to hold the universe together. It's hard to do, it's a big job. And then, soon after that, his people rebel, and they fall, and God has to work out a rescue plan to redeem humanity and creation. So he's got to work from that point forward all the time, never stops working. So Jesus says his, father's, his Father has been working all this time until the present, and he is working. God couldn't retire at that point, as after the six days, as there was so much more to do in, in sustaining the universe and, and carrying out the plan of redemption, so this means that God himself has not been observing the Sabbath day ever since that time. God himself has worked many, many Sabbaths. So what Jesus is saying is that if it is right for God the Father to be working on the Sabbath, those same reasons make it right for him to work, so to speak, on the Sabbath. If you want to call healing somebody work. Now, Jesus could have argued that their interpretation of the Sabbath was incorrect, which it was. It was was not scriptural, what they were upholding for Sabbath law that the uh, prohibition of work on Sabbath referred to work normally done in the other six days of the week certainly wouldn't apply to a man who had been an invalid for 38 years who gets miraculously healed and then carries his bed home. So it seems Jesus could have avoided the resulting controversy to the extent that it escalates to if he would have just kept his defense focused on their, their wrong application of the Sabbath law to Jesus telling the man to carry his bed. If he just would have stuck with that, it would have been okay, but instead he... He gives this reasoning that my father's been working and I've been working. So why does he do that? Because he, he should know they're, they're going to accuse him of blasphemy and they'll want to kill him. Well, the reason Jesus does, I believe, is because who he is is the biggest issue of, for all people to embrace. Jesus is God's son, and that's the most important truth. So he's going to make an, an issue here. In is verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So some say the Jews misunderstood this. They, didn't, they got him wrong on this. But if they did misunderstand him, and Jesus really wasn't claiming to be equal with God, because he wasn't really equal with God, if he, if he wasn't, if you're following what I'm saying here, if Jesus really was not equal with God, he should have not let, the, not let them think that. He should have corrected him. He should have clearly denied this is what he meant and corrected Corrected them, But he wasn't claiming to be a competitor to God or another God. Jesus was calling God his own father because he was God's son. And as God's son, he was equal with God in his being or nature, but he never acted independently of God the Father. That's why in, in verse 19, the next verse, after this text, Jesus said to them in verse 19, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son that the Son does likewise. It's not That isn't denying his equality with God. It's denying God the Son ever acts on his own. The Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is not competing with one another. They don't, they don't disagree. They don't have debates about things. They're unified. So Jesus always d- does what he sees the Father doing as God's Son. And later, in verse 23, he's going to say, uh, God has given, the Father has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So if Jesus is not equal with God, this is an outrageous and blasphemous claim he'll make when he says, everyone must honor me, God's Son, as they honor the Father. So I hear people say things like this sometimes. If Jesus was really God, he should just come out and say it. Well, here in chapter 5, he comes out and clearly says he is God, he's equal with God. It can't be any more clear than this. Jesus was equal with God, but he came in disguise, as it were, because he came to die for the sins of the world. Paul writes about this in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, Paul writes that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus was always in eternity past equal with God, in his very nature, God. But he didn't hold on to his rights and privileges because of his equality with God. But he laid aside those privileges and took on the very nature of a servant being born into humanity. And as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to lay his life down, on death on the cross. Not like Jim Carrey and Bruce Almighty. I don't recommend that movie, but if you've ever seen it, Bruce Almighty. Uh, God says, okay, you want to be God? He gives him his power. Bruce used it in really selfish and profane ways. That wasn't Jesus. Jesus uh, laid down his life as a servant to redeem people. Since Jesus was both God and man who took on the role of a servant, obedient to God the Father and to suffer for our salvation. Sometimes you'll hear him speaking as a human being. Sometimes you'll hear him speaking as God. So you can't, you never can Jesus does not fit any mold of anyone that has ever existed. You can't make sense of him by any human standards. He is utterly, utterly unique. So, what is the main point of this passage? What should we take away? Well, the true statement is this Jesus defies man made religion by working God, his Father's works, in healing the hopeless and calling them to stop sinning and start believing. Jesus defies man-made religion by working God his father's works in healing the hopeless and calling them to stop sinning and start believing. Man-made religion has no power to heal, heal the brokenness of the human condition, even if it could provide physical healing, it could not free us from the root of all of our problems. that is, sin could not ever deliver us from that. When Jesus healed people physically. He did these as signs to reveal himself as God's appointed, anointed, and sent Savior. It's not that he didn't have any genuine compassion for those who, who he healed. He did. He had compassion for people. But he, the main reason he healed them was for a sign to identify who he is. Remember, the most important thing that Jesus was about was showing people who he is. Because when you get to the end of John's gospel, he says, I wrote these things so you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and believing you may have life in his name. So until you get that right in your belief, you can't have life in his name. So Jesus is doing these things, not just out of compassion only, but to show people who he is and who he was. So he didn't come the first time just to heal physical diseases. It's clear he had the power to heal any and every affliction. He could have walked the whole place around Bethesda and just said, Hey, everybody, listen up. Anybody who has affliction or sick, you're healed. Boom. And hundreds and hundreds of them would have been healed right there in the spot. It would have been super impressive. But he wasn't there just to impress. He was there to do his father's works. He came to accomplish what was needed for the truest, deepest, and eternal healing for those who would put their trust in him. So you may not have had a disability or sickness for 38 years and felt the hopelessness of that. This man did. Jesus delivers him from that with a word. But what should have made him feel even more hopeless was when Jesus said to him, Stop sinning so nothing worse may happen to you. But it seems like these words made no impact on him at all. He just goes to the, he just goes to the leaders and says, hey, this guy who healed me, and, and that's the last you hear of him. What he should have done is realize this man who just commanded his 38-year-long disability away just called him to do the impossible, stop sinning. I don't know if you ever tried to stop sinning. It's really hard. It's tough. In fact, nobody ever has done it yet except the one who never started, which is Jesus. So he should have heard that and, and despaired even further because there's no way, if that's the condition, for nothing worse to happen, he's in terrible trouble. We are, all, we are all in terrible trouble, if that's the condition. But rather than getting Jesus in trouble with those who were only concerned with people, the people toe the line of their man-made religion, he should have looked at the one who had power over his disability as one who might also have power to heal him from a sin problem. So we often are like this man. We think our main problems are physical, whether sickness or finances or relationships or where we live or our spouse or whatever else we believe would make us happiness where we we don't have the things we need. So we see those as the big problems in life. Now many of these are legitimate concerns, but what should grieve us more than anything else is our inability to stop sinning. That should be our biggest concern ever, because it is the worst thing we have going against us, is our inability to stop sinning. Even the Apostle Paul, if you know if you've read any of his letters, if you know the New Testament, you know the Apostle Paul was quite a guy, but he couldn't quit sinning either. In fact, he says in Romans chapter seven, "Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the, this body of death?" You say, "Does Jesus, Jesus really expect us to stop sinning?" Well, actually, yes, it's why he died. We see this in First Peter 2:24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree or the cross that we might die to sin sins is really the translation there and live to righteousness by his wounds you've been healed so christ bore our sins in his body on the on the cross that we might die to sins or you could translate this also that we might depart from sins the word is plural sins and live a new kind of life in righteousness by his wounds we have been healed now, that phrase will have an ultimate fulfillment in our physical healing and the resurrection. So when, if you are a believer in Jesus and you're resurrected, no more sickness, no more disability, no, no more pain ever, no more physical suffering, it'll be totally gone. We can't even fathom what that'll be like, but that's one of the great things you have coming. No more physical ailments. Bodies, yes, we won't be spirits, we'll, be, we'll have bodies that will never wear out, and that we'll be able to run the trails at the uh, Lacamas Lake like, with no, like nothing at all. But in this context, Peter's talking about spiritual healing, freedom from bondage to sin. So Jesus, he still heals physically, miraculously sometimes today. He'll do that. But the main thing in this context of 1 Peter 2 is this verse that he gets from Isaiah 53, by his wounds you've been healed, meaning Jesus has healed us spiritually. So if he has done this for us, why do we still sin? I mean, really, if Jesus has given us this new life, Sin-free power, why do we still sin? I hate it. Well, you may know what the answer is. Already, the sin antidote has entered us through faith in Christ, but not yet has it fully reached its goal. So already, yes, we have the antidote, but not yet, complete healing has not taken place. But we do have the antidote sitting at work in us, Jesus purchased it for you with the price of his precious blood on the cross. So you don't even need health insurance for this. Jesus freely gives it to you. It is not hopeless, even in this life, that we can be dying to sins, departing from sins, and living more and more to righteousness. Even if you've been unable to walk in righteousness for 38 years, Christ in his death delivered us from sin's dominion, dominance, as well as this deadly penalty that nothing worse may happen to us. So that nothing worse, Jesus has already taken on himself, He endured hell for us on the cross. So that's gone. But the same blood that frees you from sin forgives you of sin. In fact, there's no sin that you can repent from that's not a already forgiven sin. The only sins that you can be freed from is a forgiven sin. Christ died and was raised to forgive you and free you to forsake and fight sin and to take more and more ground in your life for righteousness. Christ died and, ra- and was raised again to forgive you and free you to forsake and fight sin and to take more and more ground in your life for righteousness. So the question Jesus asks us all today is this. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? If you have been hopeless because the world and man-made religion has no cure, Jesus, who has all power, as God, and yet is a humble servant who laid his beside his privileges as God, to rescue you, can speak life into you, eternal spiritual health, healing by his powerful word. In fact, we celebrate and declare together Christ's cure by, for sin by taking the elements that represent his body and blood together in the Lord's Supper. Because as God's son, he took on human nature and shed his blood on the cross for us. We receive sin's cure he provides for us through his body and blood by faith if you believe this, this meal is for you. We have three stations here in the middle and on either side of the room where you come up and, and get the bread and cup. And what I want you to do is we're going to have a song, and during the song, you come forward, you get your bread and cup, go back to your seats, and we'll take it all together. Also during this time, oh, I do want to mention too, if, if you believe this, if you're not yet believing these truths that Jesus alone by his death and resurrection has saved you, you're putting your faith in him to do that, then this is not for you yet. But if you're ready to believe that, then you will have an appetite for this meal. Also during this time, there are going to be people out in the hall who are going to pray for you. So if you have any issues where you want to pray, either during this immediate time or after you take the communion, they'll be there in the hall to pray with you for anything you need praying about. So if you've experienced this kind of brokenness where you wonder if there's ever going to be any healing, Ask, for the, ask people to pray for you in those things as well. So, <clears throat> we'll, uh, I'll pray and we'll be, prepare ourselves to take this meal together. Father, we give you thanks for this Jesus Christ who is equal with you, who is a servant of servants, who came into our mess for broken people who had no hope, who had only expectation of something worse because we could never quit sinning, but because you sent the sinless one to die for us on the cross and be raised again for us. We have his life in us, and we know that it will reach its goal of bringing us to full resurrection life, one day where there will be no more sin. I pray, Father, for anybody in this room who has not yet sealed that by faith, by receiving Jesus in all that he has done for them that they would not leave here today without talking to somebody or talking to you about, yes, I know Jesus is my only hope. Only in him, him alone who is God and man, the only person like him, the God-man, Jesus Christ, only he could purchase for me and accomplish for me an eternal salvation that could never be taken away. Thank you for this gift, Father. So as we take these elements together, as we will, after we receive them, um Prepare our hearts, Father, to celebrate this great salvation he accomplished by taking on a body, by shedding his precious blood on the cross for us. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.